Between now and Easter, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke. Um, And in this Gospel, we look first at who God is, and then we look at who Jesus, uh, how Jesus loves the world um, from this moment forward. So let's share in God's good word from the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 1. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Most of us feel left out. Sometimes. Misfits. We don't belong. Others seem to be so confident, so sure of themselves. Insiders who know the ropes. Old hands in a club from which we are excluded. One of the ways we have of responding to this is to form our own club. Or join one that will have us. And here is at last one place where we are in and others out. The clubs range from informal to formal and gatherings that are variously political, social, cultural, economic. But the one thing that they have in common is the principle of exclusion. Identity or worth is achieved by excluding all but the chosen. And the terrible price we pay for keeping all those other people out so that we can savor the sweetness of being in insiders is a reduction of reality, a shrinkage of life. Life gets very small. Nowhere is this price more terrible than when it is paid in the cause of religion. But religion has a long history of doing just that, of reducing the huge mysteries of God to the respectability of clubs. And club rules of shrinking the vast human community to a membership. But with God, there are no outsiders. With God, there are no outsiders. Will you say that with me? With God, there are no outsiders. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. Uh, the words that I just read are from Eugene Peterson and his introduction to the gospel of St. Luke. And in his introduction, he makes it very clear that with God, there are no nobodies and no outsiders. The gospel of nobodies, that's who Luke is looking out for in ways that Matthew and Mark and John simply don't. Luke, as a matter of fact, is the only Gentile New Testament writer. Mark and John and Matthew all write from a Jewish perspective to the religious people of their time, but not Luke. Luke himself is an outsider. A Gentile, probably a physician. And so this Lent, we want to invite you to see with new eyes the good news of Jesus for all the world. For the outsider. For you, for me. So this Lent, I want to invite us to challenge us in these next 40 days between now and Easter to begin to being in worship each week and to read just one chapter of Luke's gospel every day. If you look through Luke, if you have your Bible and you look through there, you'll see that there's only 24 chapters. So even if you miss every other day, you can still get through it. Just one chapter a day and you will have read the entire gospel of Luke. And if you're not careful, you might even feel like an insider. 
because you've read the gospel of Luke. Only 24 chapters. That little parentheses in your sermon notes there is just to write in 24. That's that's all it is. And so if you began reading just a chapter a day, you know, at Lent, a lot of people give things up like chocolate or sweets or this or that. But wouldn't it be great if you could just hear me, allow me to ask you to give up five minutes of your day, of your night, to read a chapter of the gospel of Luke, to really learn the story and to see God's heart for all of his children, even the nobodies. And so in the scripture that we read together just a moment ago in Luke chapter one, we find that Luke is writing to someone named Theophilus. Will you say that with me? The name is Theophilus. Now, just like you would in any other course where you have Greek words, um, Theo means God and Phileo is like brotherly love, like Philadelphia. That comes from that work. So a God lover, a lover of God. That's what Theophilus means. Now, scholars disagree at this point. Some believe that Theophilus is written to all lovers of God, uh, regardless of their background, uh, race or religion. And it's, it's the good news of Jesus for all of the people who love God. But others believe that because the gospel writer takes the the time and the attention to write to the most excellent Theophilus, that there really is someone in mind. And probably a Roman uh, citizen of high rank. Uh, many people think that this may have been a donor, actually. Uh, in Jesus' day, if you wanted to have a book, you would have to pay someone uh, or someone would have to pay you to write the book. There were no publishing companies. There were no booksellers. And so if you wanted a story told, you had to pay someone to write it. And so many people think that this Theophilus was a Roman citizen who was the one who was giving the money to St. Luke to actually write these things of God. And so we start. Point one is this, that we find at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. God lifts up the lowly. God lifts up the lowly. That's who God is. Will you say that with me? God lifts up the lowly. That's who God is. And so in Luke chapter 1, we find this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. You will name him Jesus and he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. Mary said to the angel, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy and he will be called son of God. Now, for many of us who were raised in the church, when we hear these scriptures, it, we just think of Christmas, think of the Christmas Eve service and and how beautiful this is. But to the early hearers, particularly those outside of the religious circles, this would have rocked their world. How many major cities do we have in Oklahoma? Two, we'll take two. And what are they? Oklahoma City and Tulsa. How many other towns do we have? A bunch, a bunch, uh, 733, I'm told. So of the other 731 towns uh, in Oklahoma, uh, there's a bunch of them. Not all of them. You know, you've heard the phrase uh, one stoplight town. 
In Oklahoma, we have a whole bunch of towns that don't even qualify as a one-stop light town. They're what Adam Hamilton calls um, up in Kansas, resume speed towns. Resume speed. You know how this is. When uh, we used to, when we've gone up to Grand Lake, and and there, there's these towns that there's no stop sign, there's no stop light, there's no yield sign. It just you're driving along and you're doing, you know. 60 or 65 or then it says 55 and then 45 and then 35 and then 25 and you go a little further you don't really see anything couple of houses maybe a dog some gravel roads and then it's 35 and 45 and then resume speed nazareth was resume speed israel nobody thought of it now just three miles away there was a, a bustling suburban center um, you know, just outside of Jerusalem um, that maybe had 30,000 people in it, but not Nazareth. Nazareth was the other town, resume speed, Oklahoma, if you will. And it's to this no place town that God sends God's messenger, Gabriel, to a tiny girl, a young girl. And, and I would remind you that in Jesus' day, no first century male, that's your blank there, no first century man or leader would have ever greeted a woman, ever, under any circumstances. And yet we have God's primary messenger, Gabriel, coming to this young 12-year-old girl, maybe 12 and a half tops. When Mary um, had Jesus, she probably would have been 13, 13 and a half, maybe 14 tops. And the Lord says this, greetings, favored one. Can you imagine that on your way to somewhere, maybe Dallas or Kansas City, you stop off at one of these resume speed towns and there's some, you know, little sixth, seventh grade girl. And this is where Jesus, God's Messiah, after having no prophetic voice for 400 years, shows up on the scene. Now, if you had somebody tell you that, would you believe him? No. No. God himself showing up in Nowheresville, Israel. Yet the angel says, favored one, the Lord is with you. And so in Luke 1, 46 to 52, uh, look how Mary responds. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Lifted up the lowly. Now, God's mercy is for those who fear him. That's what the scripture says. Now, the Hebrew word for fear is yare. And, and we miss this all the time. It's not. Like fear, like go hide in a hole, afraid. It is fear as in good and right respect. And so other places in the Bible, it says uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so around here, we like to talk about appropriate respect or fear uh, like a 220 plug. Right. Any of you all have 220 plugs in your house? Yes, of course you do. What do you do with it? Dry your clothes. Maybe it's your oven. It's good. It can, you know, heat things up and it can lighten things up. It can do your laundry for you. But if you don't have respect for that plug, it'll kill you. Right. You put a fork in that thing. It's going to be bad news. And so there's to be a proper right 
understood respect for who God is, for God's power. And those who respect God and understand who God is and live under God's authority, great things can happen. This is the beginning of wisdom, the scripture says. And God's mercy is for those who show respect to him. And yet on the other side of that, the scripture tells us that God brings down the proud. In Proverbs 16, 18, it says it like this. Pride goes before destruction. You may have learned it like this. Pride goes before the fall and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, this is really the struggle, isn't it? That Luke shows us that God shows us in the Bible between those who think they're somebody and those who think they're nobody. It is the struggle with pride. And we all struggle with pride. I struggle with pride. Um, I've never known anyone that didn't struggle with pride. Adam and Eve struggled with pride. The very first sin in the garden. Every time I walk up um, to the church, I'm always looking for trash. It's just, just one of those things. And everybody on our staff and all the members of the church know that if you see trash, pick it up. No one is too high or too low to pick up um, trash. Now, in truth, uh, we're going to have more and more trash because we have more and more people. And, and it's kind of fun to pick up the trash these days because a lot of them are notes that have blown from the south wind from the schools. And uh, you get to see, oh, hey, so-and-so made a, a B on the paper. Well, good for them. You know, forks, ketchup packets, honey packets. You never know what's going to blow through our 35 acres. And I would love to tell you that I stop and I pick up this trash because I'm so humble as your leader. I'd love to tell you that. But that's not really true. I pick up the trash because I'm prideful. And it's a good reminder to me that in the first days that we bought the land uh, 16 years ago, um, I had to pick up the trash because I was the only one around to do it. We had no members. We had no church. But now that we worship between five and six hundred people most weekends, I pick up trash, not because I'm humble, but to remind me of, you know what? God did all this anyway, and it can go away as fast as, you know, it came or faster. And so we all struggle with this pride and with this humility back and forth and back and forth. And God comes to earth in Jesus and he makes an incredible point. Adam Hamilton um, started this series uh, last year for Lent uh, up at our flagship church at Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City. And part of what he did was he had taken a trip to the Holy Land and he narrated a number of things that you can really only sense if you are in Israel itself. And so I want to, I want to show you where Jesus was born um, from someone who actually filmed where King Herod was. He, if, we're going to show you a mountain and catch this. The king wanted to let everybody know how, what a big deal he was, that he was somebody, that he was powerful. He literally tore down a mountain and had the people move it and rebuild it so that everybody knew that this guy could move a mountain. Let, let's take a look. This is the mountain that he built. And right next to it to the left was the original mountain that was torn down in order to build the new mountain. You kind of see it there on the left. That one was torn down. A new one was built. Tunnels go through the mountain. And on the top was a fabulous palace, including an indoor swimming pool. Now, this is on the edge of the Judean desert. So the servants had to carry water up in the desert to the top of the hill and to fill the indoor swimming pool because Herod was kind of a big deal. He was a somebody. And if you stand on the top of of that uh, palace... You can look over and see Bethlehem and you can see the hill where Jesus was born in a cave in a stable and slept in an animal's feeding trough. You, you understand this, that this guy, there was a mountain. He says, I want you to take that down. Uh, and they said, I want you to put it up over here. 
And then he said, oh, by the way, uh, I want a swimming pool. And they said, we're in the middle of a desert. He says, I don't care. You know, pump the water, walk it up, make me a swimming pool on the top of my mountain in my palace. And, and, he, and he does. Now, this was the somebodies. This is where you would expect God to show up at the top of these huge palaces. But if you were to pan right and look out over the desert, you would see this tiny little no place Bethlehem in a cave. And that's where God chose to come to earth. Why would God do that? Does that not seem odd to you? Take everything that our world says is important and turns it on its head. You see, point two is this. If you are really a somebody, then you are about the business of helping the nobodies understand that they are somebody. Because that's what Jesus did. If you're really somebody and you want to live into uh, the life that God has for you, a part of that is to share and help and make sure that everybody around you understands that there's somebody in Christ. It's very important. You see, Jesus came to show us the heart and character of God. And he showed up in all the most unlikely places. Now, this isn't in the Gospel of Luke, but I think it makes the point uh, that Luke will show us over these next six weeks. I think it does it very well. In John 4, you find the story of the woman at the well. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria, and Samaria was a place uh, that Jews didn't want to go because these were people of mixed blood, and they weren't really supposed to even talk to these folks, certainly not touch them, not socialize with them in any way. Uh, good Jews were to walk on the other side of the road, and we see that in the story of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, and near the plot of ground that Jacob, right, when he said this is the God of Abraham and Jacob, and so this Jacob that they're talking about had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. That was a big deal. And Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. And it was about noon. Now, you would want to be reminded, if any of you all have been to a desert area, noon outside with no covering is the last place you want to be. So Jesus is just hanging out at this well at noon in the noonday sun. It is hot. It is miserable. And a Samaritan, and not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Now, this, this should get good because Jesus should not be anywhere near a Samaritan. He should be nowhere near a woman. And under no circumstances should he ever be near a Samaritan woman. Everybody knew this. She comes to draw water at noon. Nobody does that. When would the people come to draw water? Dawn. When it's cool. Any of you all ever been on a mission trip or worked in those sorts of areas? You do your work from pre-dawn to about 11. You're done for the day. Right? That's when the workers work. Nobody in their right mind comes to the well at noon. This lady did. And so she comes. And Jesus says to her, he's speaking to a woman, a Samaritan woman. He says, give me a drink. You see, his disciples had gone to the city to buy food. But the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? I mean, she gets it. Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman says to him, sir, you don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep. I mean, she, she's not getting this at all. Where do you get that living water, she says. 
And are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? Now, she's just kind of putting it on me at this point. Like, who are you? Why are you talking to me? And don't you know who Jacob is? You know, what are you doing? I mean, she is just calling him out. And Jesus says back to her. Uh, why don't you go call your husband and come back? Now, that's a good question. Because Jesus knew that the reason she was at the well at noon is because none of the other women would have her. No one else of her people group would be around her. She was anathema to everyone. Now, you would also be reminded that in Jesus' day, women could not divorce men. Which meant that her having no husband is that she had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband, Jesus said. And she says, what you've said is true. You see, husband number one had her, dismissed her. Husband number two had her, dismissed her. Husband number three had her, dismissed her. Husband number four had her, dismissed her. By the time she found someone who would even be in relationship with her, she was so damaged he wouldn't even marry her. She was broken beyond belief. Coming to a well in the noonday sun. And she's she's trying to keep her wits about her. And Jesus is lovingly talking to her about let's let's get down to the truth of the matter. So then his his disciples show up and they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. And you know what she said to the people? Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? She knew that Jesus came and welcomed those that no one else would talk to. No one else would help. And that's exactly where God shows up. You see, Jesus came for the nobodies. For the nobodies. For those people who could never get life right. Even when they tried, they were not treated well. Or they were despised or rejected or pushed aside. And Jesus knows about all of that. He chooses to allow himself to be treated in those ways in order that we would know that in every way God has been through what we've been through. And yet, no sin. So that when he goes to the cross, he takes all that mess with him. And we're free. We're really free to live anew in him because he is for us. And in God says, you are somebody. You're important. You matter to me. When no one else looks at you, when no one else will hang out with you, when no one else will talk to you, I care about you. You are somebody in me. Your identity is not in them. It's not in your marital status. It's not in the people group. It's not in some club. It's in me. Our identity is in Christ. First and foremost in all ways. And so this is supposed to teach us in the same way that Jesus said to his disciples on the last night of his life. I washed your feet. You call me teacher, master and Lord. You're right. And so if I washed your feet, you also ought to wash other people's feet. And if we look at this story with the woman at the well. If you're going to be a follower of the master, that's what Luke always calls him. He doesn't call him teacher like the others. He calls him master. And if we're going to follow the master, then you have to care about the nobodies, too. It's to look like Jesus. It's to look like Jesus. Now, I want to shift gears for just a second. I want you to think about something much more pleasant. Uh, I want you to think about a waiting room. You know, those of you who had kids, you, you know this. You, any, anymore, you have these elaborate details of who gets called when, who shows up, when do they get to come to the birthing room, and all that stuff. You think about that? Remember when you had your kids? 
who, who got to come and who got to see the kids and who was first. You do all that. Well, about last year, this time, uh, we were very excited because Chantel's little brother um, had a baby. Um, and so this is her little brother, Jason, and our niece, Selah, and this is little Judah on the first day of his life. You see how happy Chantel is? Aunt Chantel, she gets to hold the baby. Hold the baby. Now, friends, we're on a short list. We, we were at the hospital. We got to see the baby on the first day. And if you've ever been on that list, you know what a joy that is, what an honor that is. Many of you have allowed me as your pastor to be with you on the first day of your child's life. There's maybe no greater honor in the world than being able to be with new life. It's something that only God can do. Now, um, Jason and Selah had to go do some other things. But you think Chantel left? Now I'll show you the next photo. She kept holding that baby and holding that baby and holding that baby. It's one of the great things in life, isn't it? So I want you to think about who is in your waiting room. Maybe maybe you can think about the people that when you had your babies, who were who was around you. And then I want you to think about where God chose to give birth to his son and who he invited to his waiting room. In Luke 2, verse 4, it says this, Joseph also went to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. That's where God chose to have his son in Bethlehem. And, and who did he invite? Who did he invite? In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. For you is born in this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. Now, again, we read this as Christmas story like, oh, yeah, I know all this. Hold on a minute. Do you know what a shepherd is? Have you ever seen a real live shepherd? Do you know about the city of David? Do you know that the city of David is roughly 10 acres? It's a third of the size of this property that we're on tonight. It's tiny. That's where God shows up. And the shepherds look like this. Adam Hamilton um, took this video uh, of some shepherds. Uh, just last year. I want to show it to you. We were out in the middle of nowhere, not even any roads where we were walking. And I mean, old Roman roads. And here's the guy up in the top left, the shepherd. Sometimes they're dressed like Bedouins. This guy looks like a modern uh, shepherd. And, and these are 21, 21 sheep. These are his sheep. Now, this guy actually had a house. Most of them don't have permanent houses. And this was his house. And you can see how desolate and barren this area. This is This is the area around Bethlehem. And do you notice all the caves up there? And that's where they put their sheep at night to protect them. So when you talk about where, G where Jesus was born, think about one of those caves where the animals were kept at night. And, and this is actually a pretty nice place for a shepherd. You know, uh, plywood and cardboard and tin roofs. Just little shanties. Jesus would have been born probably in the side of a hill, in the side of a cave. And the shepherds come to see him and they stink like sheep. But who better to know how to comfort a baby in a feeding trough than a shepherd. That's who's in God's waiting room. Are the shepherds. Ready to serve and care and love. The savior of the world. And that's really the point of Luke isn't it. That anybody can be somebody in Jesus name. And that includes you. It includes me. Anybody can be somebody in Jesus name. And nobody is left out in God's kingdom. Yesterday, I came across a story 
uh, of a guy that I just love. I think he's awesome. He's the youth minister down at St. Andrews on Southwest 119th. Uh, that church is very special to me because they were a church plant a few years before we got our start. So I always follow them with great joy. It's a wonderful church down on the south side of Oklahoma City. And I want you to hear um, what Jonathan wrote on his Facebook page because um, I think it's just awesome and kind of funny. Jonathan said this. He said, yesterday on my way home from work, I ran out of gas. It was pure ignorance on my part. So I took the Walker exit off of 240, hoping to make it to a gas station. You all know that area. It is packed. He said it was a bad move. He says, next thing I know, my car is dead in the right turn lane in a busy intersection during rush hour. I couldn't just push my car to the parking lot or I'd get hit. So I had a gas can, right? But I couldn't leave my car without risking it being towed. I was up a creek, he says. To be quite honest, even though the entire situation was my fault, there was a part of me that was saying, come on, God. Oh, come on. Why? It was super frustrating. And even though it was a busy intersection and Oklahomans are usually pretty quick to help, I went a good 20 minutes without anyone pulling over to offer aid. And then a creaky old brown car with rust spots all over it pulled up with a man and his wife inside. And to be honest, they looked a little shady to me for all the wrong reasons. And the man asked how he could help. This is where it gets weird. I gave him my gas can and a 20. The only cash I had on me. And asked him to fill up the can and bring it back. And as they drove away, I remember thinking, I am never going to see that gas can or my money ever again. And then he writes, I was wrong. Five minutes later, the man came running around the corner, zigging through traffic with that bright red gas can in hand. Not only that, but he insisted on putting the gas in the car for me. And as he began to hand back my money, I told him to keep the change. It was only like 16 bucks. But the man started to tear up. He then explained that he and his wife had been living out of their car. And that they had driven to that intersection because they intended to panhandle so that they could get enough money to stay in a cheap hotel that night because it was their anniversary. And they'd been to several churches that day, but had been turned away. And he says, in, in defense of churches everywhere, we usually hand out vouchers and food and refer people to shelters, etc. Pretty much everything short of handing out cash. And that's right. But listen to what the man said to him. He said at the end of a long day that I was a blessing from God. And I told him the same. And then Jonathan says this. He says, I tell you this story for two reasons. First, no matter what situation you find yourself in, stuck on the side of the road or living out of your car, you can always be a blessing to others. You can right where you are. There are no nobodies in the kingdom of God. And then he says this second, when you pray to God for help, don't expect that help to look like what you want it to look like. Expect something better. Anyways, if you have a few spare seconds today, he says, please pray for this man and his wife. His name was Charles. So tonight, when you all come to communion, I hope you'll pray for Charles. A beautiful saint of God. Just looking for a place. To spend his anniversary with his wife. But not too busy. To fill up a youth director's car on the south side of Oklahoma City. 
You see, no matter what your situation, you can always be a blessing to others. So my action step for us this week is this. Think to yourself, who in your life has a tough, thankless job? Whose work is important? Just write their name in there. Uh, or maybe you don't have a name, just a face or, or a job or a task. Think to yourself, how can I acknowledge their work and thank them or bless them for all that they do to serve? It might be a waitress or a lunch lady or a cleaning lady or a crossing guard or garbage collector or janitorial staff. Do something nice for one of them this week. Uh, when we lived in our other house, I, I got to know our garbage collector um, because I always had stuff you know, flowing out of the garbage and I, I wanted him to be nice to me. So I would bring him a Coke. When he would come by, he was so thankful that somebody thought of him, just gave him a Coke every time he, he came by to pick up our trash. He was very thankful. You'll feel great, too. So I want to ask you, who can you encourage this week who's having a hard time or maybe on the outside? Because, friends, you never know what a kind word or gesture can do. It can make a world of difference, a world of difference.